Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. And God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding, His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life, it's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious, think well, advance good. This is Q. I'm talking to this man named Stephen. His issue was that they had lost crops for three years in a row in that part of Uganda. The first two years to drought, the third year to floods. And so I asked him at the end of our time together a question that I often would ask my colleagues around the world, which is, what is the greatest challenge your community faces? If we were to mobilize a million people in North America to stand with you, to be generous, to pray passionately, to raise their voices boldly, what issue would it be? And I knew the answer was going to be hunger because he had just told me about three years of lost crops. And he looked at me and he said, climate change. So how expensive was your Thanksgiving meal this year? Hi, and welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons here on Faith Radio. Gabe is off this week. I'm Paul Perot, and no question, inflation has really made not only our holiday meals more expensive, but meals in general. Why food costs are up is a multifaceted question. Food chain issues, producer costs are up, and then you add on the issue of the war in Ukraine, often called the breadbasket of Europe, and drought conditions, not only in the western part of the U.S., but in many parts of the world. And yes, while many multinational corporations are trying to figure out ways of dealing with the issue from a top-down manner, there are others who see the issue as just too big for a one-size-fits-all approach. And that's where we want to go today. And for that, we have two important talks. First, we'll hear again from a man who comes from a very theologically conservative background, but when it comes to agriculture, you might think of him more as some sort of hippie farmer. Joe Salatin runs the Polyface Farms in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and he blogs at thelunaticfarmer.com. But as you'll hear, he has a passion for sustainable farming practices that both help provide healthy foods locally, but also to improve the overall environment. Let's listen. I grew up in a conflicted home, a very conservative fundamentalist home. My mother was the first women's health and phys ed professor at Bob Jones College before it became Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina. And so we went to fellowship every Sunday with straight-laced fundamentalists who, of course, ate cheap food in order to put more money in the offering plate for the missions. But during the week at home, surrounded by organic gardening and farming magazines, Mother Earth News magazines, Our farm friends were hippies. Plenty of marijuana was smoked around our house, sitting around the compost pile, talking about ecology, earthworms, mycorrhizae, gibberellins, and the fearfully and wonderfully made aspects of this nest that we call Earth. After coming back to the farm full-time and God blessing us with wild success, I started speaking, lecturing, writing books. I have the 10th one coming out next week. I call it my coming out book. 
And I became the, the lone faith person in my community because I was talking to foodies, sustainable farmers. And finally, in you know, a way to deal with that, I created a moniker for myself called the uh, Christian Libertarian Environmentalist Capitalist Lunatic. And so when I was speaking at UC Berkeley, of course, you know, the, the, the hot bin of the devil's place, um, I was there and I did my song and dance to standing room only crowd of students and, you know, my uh, creationist, sanctity of life, um, all that kind of stuff. And got done, and not only did they not throw me out, they erupted in a standing ovation. We came out of the room afterwards, the two professors who got me there said, we have between us 20 years of experience here at Berkeley, and we have never heard anybody use the word God reverently from the stage without being hissed. They have this tradition there of hissing speakers that they don't like when they say something they don't like. Very cordial, cordial. And it dawned on me at that time that probably this was the first time in most of these students' lives that they had heard a Christian who they thought was wrestling with consistency. And it dawned on me, my goodness, what kind of bridges and conversations could we in the religious right faith community have If we owned creation stewardship instead of giving it over to creation worshipers and instead we owned it as a worship of our creator's majestic, creative, abundant, provisional self-sufficiency ability. You see, I believe that all of physical creation is an object lesson of spiritual truth. And that the redemptive capacity that we love to talk about in our catechisms and in our fellowship groups that extends to each other's broken spirits and broken spiritual situations in a very visceral way, that redemptive capacity is in our hands and our feet, our intellect, our mechanical ability to participate with God in his creation, redeeming a fallen earth as well, to rehydrate the desert places, to bring healing to the gullies, to build soil, to sequester carbon, to keep the air clean, to all the kinds of things that we can do as ambassadors and participants. And so the question that I ask is, how can my farm and foodscape illustrate to my neighbors, to the world at large, when people come and visit, when they dine with me, when they walk my fields, when they participate in my farm and they touch me, do they leave saying, we have seen forgiveness? Do they leave saying, we have seen mercy? Do they leave saying, we have seen neighborliness and a whosoever will idea? The question is, does what I believe in the pew show itself on my menu? And I think that when we drill down into our conquistador mentality, what we find very quickly is that there's a tremendous tension And we find a hypocrisy there that is unbelievable. And in my world, when I talk to, you know, all the organic folks and, you know, the ecological and the foodies and all this stuff, typically 
I'm talking to groups who embrace abortion and all this stuff. And, you know, for me, as for I'm sure many of you, when you have a tree hugger, save the baby whales, abortionist, we, we just don't wrap around. Right. How do you do that? How do you, how do you chain yourself to a tree, but you don't have any problem ripping a baby from the womb? You know, to, we don't have words to express the degree of conflict we see in that. Let me tell you something. They see the th- same thing in us when we go to a Sanctity of Life rally and stop off for Happy Meals on the way. And so on our farm, we don't view a, a duality. You know, physical is evil and spirit is good. It's all one. In fact, the Bible doesn't make those distinctions. It talks about the glory of things celestial and terrestrial. And the glory of old men and young women and young men and old men and even governors and kings and the, all sorts of things like that. And, and, and when... You know, our churches, we get together, and good night, if I go in there and I dare to submit, maybe at the next potluck, uh, we should use uh, paper plates instead of styrofoam. What are you, some sort of pinko, commie, you know, tree hugger, nirvana, gaya, worshiping, you know. We, we can't even have the conversation because we've gone to our corners because those people are a bunch of creation pantheistic worshipers, and we, we're exercising dominion, and we're taking over. And see, the, I think the reason the Lord's Prayer says that he, he, he give us, you know, let it be done on earth as it is in heaven is because too often what's being done on earth is not what ought to be done in heaven. And God wants us to bring a visceral representation of himself down. So what would happen if our churches adopted 10 farmers and and bought local food instead of from the supermarket and developed a local economy sourced around, leveraged around the church, turned the lawns into community gardens, uh, equipped the youth with mattocks and hoes and sent them to chop brambles on a neighboring farmer. So when they got around at Bible study and talked about the fall of Eden and brambles, they'd know what stickers were like and we've got to fight these things. It's sin is real. Then you have an object lesson. Ultimately, what we see is a mandate for a physical healing of our land, of our economy, our emotions, our ecology, and that when we do that, it makes bridges of respect that even our enemies respect us. And that is a place, as a servant of the Most High God, I want to be in my culture. Well, again, a great talk there from Joe Salatin of Polyface Farms in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, talking about sustainable farming practices and how they can both help out dealing with our food chain issues but also helping our environment. This is Q Ideas. Again, Gabe is off this week. I'm Paul Perot, And one of the healthiest things we can eat are fresh fruits and vegetables. But, but between the growing and then the shipping, it can get expensive, oftentimes too expensive for many of the inner city poor. But what if such food could be grown locally, even in urban centers, even during the colder months of the year? It is being done. 
For the next nine minutes or so, let's listen to a talk from Eddie Badrina of Eden Green Technology. Using innovative virtual greenhouses, large amounts of food can be grown safely, economically, and in environmentally sustainable ways. This is a talk shared from this past spring's 2022 Culture Summit. It's called The Future of Food. How many of you know what a DTR is? Raise your hand. It's a define the relationship talk. It's what every dating couple has before it either gets really good or it gets really bad. And there's only two outcomes, right? It's, it's nerve-wracking. It's momentous because there are only two outcomes. You're going to go to the next level or you're going to break up. Well, friends, we are going to have an eight-minute DTR right now, but it's specifically about food. How many of you had a salad yesterday for lunch or dinner? Show of hands. Felt pretty good, right? It's got some good nutritious greens. It's got some red tomatoes, maybe some onions thrown in, passed on the croutons. Well, maybe it costs a little more than you thought it would. It's all right. You're feeling good. Well, what if I told you that 90% of the lettuce that was in your salads came from 2,000 miles away, California and Arizona? What if I told you that the truck it got, that it took to get from there to here, wasted about 110 gallons of diesel, that it spewed 2,500 pounds of carbon dioxide into the air, and that your lettuce that you're eating spent about probably more than a week in transit. Now, what if I told you that that lettuce, 30 to 40% of its little lettuce head friends never made it off the field? Stayed in, stayed in the field unharvested and rotting. And that to grow 40 acres of that lettuce, we would waste around 800,000 gallons of water a year. And that's organic. If it was conventional, it would be wasting 800,000 gallons of pesticide-contaminated runoff water. And now, what if I told you that to gather all the produce, 90% of which, again, of lettuce is grown on the West Coast, it would take 600,000 migrant workers that leave their families behind to chase the seasonal harvests up and down the coast for $15 an hour in a dead-end job solely because they want to provide their, for their families. How are you feeling about that lettuce now? Not great, right? Well, herein lies the problem today. We can't clearly value something until we have a relationship with it. It's that way with people. It's that way with our food. With people, if we don't know them, what happens is in our culture, in our society, it turns into an online shouting match. It turns into an us versus them mentality. 
We devalue people because we don't know them. And it's the same thing with our food. We don't value our food because we don't know our food. We don't know where our food comes from. We don't know who picks it. We don't know how in the world it got here. And we really don't know the true costs of it. And that is ruining our society, both socially, environmentally, and spiritually. But what if we could reevaluate, revalue, reconnect with the food that we put in our bodies every day? What would that look like? You all need to understand that reconnecting this relationship with our food is one of the greatest challenges of our lifetime. The future of farming must solve this reconnection of the relationship between communities and food. I believe properly grown food with communities in mind and a deep understanding of what's involved will go a long way towards solving crucial social issues, national security issues, mental issues, community health issues. So we need to not only grow this in such a way that it cares for the environment around us, but we need to grow it locally. We need to grow it with minimal waste. We need to grow it efficiently and affordably so that we can care for the people around us. You may think that's impossible, but it's happening today. Here's how I know. I lead a team of horticulture experts and engineers at a company called Eden Green. Our whole goal is to take the farms from way out there to right next door to where the people are. When we do that, with each of our acre and a half greenhouses, it's equivalent to 40 acres of conventional farming. An acre and a half, which is about a football field size, can produce over 2 million pounds of leafy greens, 2 million pounds of herbs, 2 million pounds of peppers. We do it by combining the free use of sunlight, God-given sunlight, with the density, the cubic density of vertical farming. We have walls of greens that you saw that are more than 18 feet high. But more importantly, because of our use of sunlight with the density, we only use 2% of the electricity of indoor vertical farms. And we only waste 90,000 gallons of water. Just to give you a scope of that, each one of our households wastes 45,000 gallons of water a year. So to grow 2 million pounds of greens in a football field-sized facility, we only waste two households worth of water. All of this combined makes it extremely affordable and cost-effective for everyone to have nutritious produce. We want local produce to be just available to everyone, an everyday occurrence across all socioeconomic levels, not just a luxury for those of us who can afford it. 
But we aren't the only ones doing this. There are others dreaming and doing of the same thing. And we have three things in common. And my hope is that you would join us in having these three things in common. The first is we want to reconnect culture and our relationship with food and with the people who are growing it. To me, the most meaningful thing that eating green is doing is not actually growing greens. The most meaningful thing that we are doing is that we are employing 30 people per greenhouse. That's 30 people, 30 neighbors next to you and me. That's 30 workers who have access to job opportunities in one of the most cultural, redemptive industries of our lifetime. And that's 30 employees, 30 neighbors who you know are taking care and growing the greens that are sitting in your fridge and on your table. Secondly, you want to help localize food production. So doing that virtually eliminates distribution costs, right? It eliminates wastes from the farm all the way to the fridge. Hyperlocal, hyperlocal farms eliminates CO2 emissions and road and infrastructure degradation. But more importantly, it solves national security issues because we are making our country more resilient to supply chain issues. Farms like ours make produce more accessible year-round, which also means it's more affordable, it's more fresh, it's more plentiful, which is especially important for our neighbors in poor communities. If you've ever seen a grocery store in some of the poorer communities in our nation, it looks nothing, it's the same brand on the grocery store, but it looks nothing like what we see in ours. It's because that supply chain rolls downhill, and they get the leftovers. We don't want them to have leftovers. So large-scale commercial facilities like ours, with a mesh network of greenhouses all across the United States, can feed the masses. But we also believe in the power of local community-based gardens. These are, these are crucial to providing hard-to-grow, yet really high-demand produce. If you all have ever tasted locally grown carrots and peas and potatoes and turnips, there's nothing like it. But more importantly, when you have that network of smaller gardens, what we're advocating for is actually to have community gardens and then networked backward backyard gardens. When you have backyard gardens, think of it not just your own, but sharing it with your neighbors. When you have community gardens and networked back, backyard gardens, we consider that, I consider that, relational resiliency tools and not just ways to feed your neighborhood and your streets. So final, finally, we 21st century farmers have in common what we have in common is that we all want to be good stewards using technology of the environment of creation God has entrusted with us. With the pandemic in place 
and working from home, working remotely, more of a reality, what we're seeing is a, more, a, a larger trend towards urban and suburban living. With that, with that increased suburban and urban living, we're seeing an increased pressure and waste on the land directly around us. And we have to reduce that waste. We have to reduce that pressure. And at the same time, we have to cultivate a deeper relationship with that land. So that relationship looks way different in the 21st century than it looked even 50 years ago. But if we apply technology properly, as well as these backyard gardens and these community gardens, and we have our neighboring communities in mind, we can actually be really effective stewards of creation. So I'm asking you to have a DTR with your food. Identify its value. Identify who's growing it. Where it came from. Who makes and delivers it. How it affects your physical and mental health. And then, three times a day, asking you to reconnect and strengthen your relationship with your food. It will take work, and like all good relationships, it will take time, and it will take intentionality. But it's a lifelong relationship that we all will have, as will future generations. So it's worth, it's worth it to have that DTR now. This is Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons here on Faith Radio. And yeah, we think a lot about food around the holidays, but I think Eddie Badrina there from Eden Green Technology with his Define Our Relationship conversation did a great job of helping us look at our relationship with our food in general and think about it in a broader way, not just for us, but for everyone and especially how it impacts the environment. Hopefully these two talks today really helped you think through many of the issues around our food chain, the environment, and how we as Christians can think well and advance good in this arena. Remember to connect with Gabe and his team at qideas.org as again, we seek to help you stay curious, think well, and advance good. I'm Paul Perot. Again, thanks for listening. Hope you join us next time. This show is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.